Well, as I said, it's good to be home. Glad we're back. I know you all were in good hands when we were gone. Thank you, Pastor Keith. We appreciate that. And I was excited to hear. I was actually able to listen to some of your sermon on the, the first week about your cousin's healing. How about that? Do we expect God to do that? Or do we just kind of pray and not expect God to work? I, you know, every time I hear about expecting, I think of when, when Peter was being prayed for in jail. And they were praying for him and praying for him. And he gets released. And, he gets, and he's knocking on the door. And they don't believe it's him. In fact, I had to go back to that scripture, Acts 12. It says, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the home of Mary, mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So they're praying for his release. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it. That's pretty kind of humorous when you read that. Hey, it's Peter, but I'm not going to let him in. And exclaim, Peter is at the door. And what do these folks who are praying for Peter's release say? You're out of your mind. They told her when she kept insisting that it was so, they again didn't believe him and said, oh, it must be his angel. But her, Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So I am kind of got the feeling that they were not praying in an expecting manner. How often do we do that, though? We pray a perfunctory prayer over someone, but we're really not expecting God to do anything. Every prayer we pray, we should expect God to do something. What's the acronym PUSH? Pray until something happens. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but you keep praying. We've talked about the incident in Daniel. He prayed three weeks for the angel to intervene. If he'd have stopped praying at two weeks, what would have happened? Pray until God shows up. And this actually kind of ties into a little bit of what we're talking about as we're going through Acts. More specifically, the power of the Holy Spirit working through the people in Acts. When we pray this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit does the work, right? That God intervenes through the Spirit to touch and to heal on whatever needs we represent before God, that God is able to do that. And we pray believing that. And every time we left off last time, every time the apostles were preaching, what happened to them? They got thrown in jail. They got beaten. But every time that happened, they were placed in front of people in order to preach to them. They got to share the gospel with those who they probably never would have been able to do. And what did Jesus say? You're going to go before leaders, and I'm going to fill your mouth with words. And every time they were arrested, they were brought before leaders, and they were able to preach to them. The jailers and the rulers told them not to preach anymore. If you do that, we'll let you go. Now, they could have lied and said, no, okay, we won't do it. But they didn't. They stood up and said, no, we're going to continue to do it. This is where we left off. Acts 5.29, 
Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Again, they're in their, in their face. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, the leaders, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. So here you have his group of leaders. You have the, San, the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees who didn't get along, but they were getting along in this instance. They were getting really incensed and ready to go out and start rioting to kill these people. There was just, fury was overtaking them. And I thought about that. Isn't that kind of what we see a little bit today? When people stand for the truth, and not so much I'm making you believe it, when I just stand for something that's true, the people who don't believe it go crazy. They get really incensed about stuff like that. When people stand for what's truth and what's right, the ones opposed seem to go off the deep end and just go crazy. Just like these guys were getting ready to go out and just start a riot and kill the apostles. So you see that same type of thing. Further evidence that Solomon was right. Nothing new under the sun, right? What happened then happens today. So in the middle of this potential riot, there's one guy who stands up. He sees a little bit of the truth. He doesn't understand it, doesn't recognize it, but he says something that God uses to thwart them. We know the story about Gamaliel. But before we read it, let's see who Gamaliel is. Acts 5.34 says, A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin in order that the men be put outside for a little while. So we know he's a Pharisee. And if you remember, the Sanhedrin was Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees did not agree with Pharisees and vice versa, and they didn't get along. But for him to be able to speak to both groups and they honored him meant that he, pretty, he had a high authority rating in the, in the crowd. But why did they do that? Why did both sides honor him? Well, because Gamaliel was pretty liberal in his applications of the Jewish law. And he was moderate in his approach to problems. His advice to his compatriots here, we think was great, but it was unwise and dangerous to the situation but God was able to use even him to save the apostles. Gamaliel was a kind of a go along to get along kind of guy, peace at any cost type of person. He would not take hard positions when there was opposition. If there was no one opposing him, he would make the hard choice, but if there was gonna be opposition, he kind of backed off and played the middle of the road. He was a ride the fence kind of guy. He was also a wait and see type of guy. He rode the middle to avoid any kind of conflict. He didn't want them rioting. He didn't want them going out and killing him. He just wanted to calm everybody down. Let me appease everybody. Acts 22.3, he was also Paul's teacher while Paul was in Pharisee school. It says, and Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. So Gamaliel knew the law but he was moderate in his approach to handling it. And so he was trying to appease both sides by doing that. Now, the words that he speaks show two things, and I'm gonna read those in a minute. 
The first thing that it shows is Gamaliel was incorrect about his assessment of who Jesus was. And in spite of his misunderstanding or mischaracterization of Jesus, he did know one truth about God. So let's look what he says, Acts 5.35, Gamaliel stands up and then he addressed them and said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all of his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. So what was, what was wrong with what he was saying? Well, the first thing was he was grouping Jesus in with the other rebels. Just another guy who was going to raise up and defeat the Roman rule. He was nothing special, just some kind of rabble-rouser. He grouped in with everybody else. It was not anyone special. Gamaliel did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. He did not accept that Jesus was the one true God. He did not accept that Jesus was the only way to the Father. He was just another leader. And what he was doing in that, he was denying the tenets of his faith. He was denying the truth of Scripture. He was denying that Jesus was God. He may have said Jesus was a God. He was denying that Jesus was the only way of the Father. He was denying the virgin birth. He was denying Jesus' death and resurrection. He was denying everything that we consider that's basic to our faith. He was acknowledging that Jesus was just another guy, wasn't the Messiah, wasn't raised from the dead. He was denying everything that Jesus was specifically teaching about. He grouped Jesus in with everybody else. Now let me expand on that point a little bit. We all know folks who live good lives. Good moral people, they do good things. They're great folks to hang around and they believe a bunch of stuff about many things. How many of you know people who would call themselves spiritual but not necessarily Christian? They believe in Jesus, but they group Jesus in with all the other spiritual leaders. That he's no different than Buddha or Confucius or whoever. He's just the same and all these roads lead to God. They read all these books from all these different religious leaders and feel that Jesus is just one of the many ways to God. How many used to believe that? How many still believe that? They deny the exclusivity of the gospel and the Christian faith. But the funny thing is, so does every other religion as well. Every other religion claims to be the only way. They're not inclusive of Christianity. They're just like we are. They claim to be the only way. We have to be convinced in our own minds that Jesus is the only way and he is the truth. Let me ask you a question. Anybody married in here? How many of you or your spouses would be okay if you had many other boyfriends or girlfriends? Hey, many ways to a good marriage, right? 
If I have all these friends over here and all these friends over here, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a good marriage. If you were alive in the 70s, you remember all that nonsense that went on then. Multiple partners and all that kind of gobbledygook. It wouldn't work because when you get married, you have one person. Jesus claims to be the only way. You can't have multiple gods. You can't have multiple relationships with people who are not God. We have to be convinced that his death on the cross was the only payment acceptable for our sin. Jesus says himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And everything that Gamaliel was saying, he was denying all of that. And that's what's prevalent today. Everyone is accepting of all different methods of getting to God. Jesus calls himself the stumbling block. Everyone, or most everyone, is okay with God. The name of Jesus now becomes the stumbling block. And you say Jesus is the only way. Now, I, I've said this before. Is, as believers, we have to be careful about what we read and what we watch what we take in. Now, I think most of us, if we watch a secular movie or a secular show, we pretty much know what we're watching. And we can just discard most of it. And we're pretty, we're pretty discerning about that kind of stuff, hopefully. The problem comes in when you have spiritual books, spiritual movies. That they sound good and they're uplifting and they're encouraging, but they're not true. They're not biblical. Because they usually deny the basics of the faith. If we get our spiritual lessons and truth from these type of movies because they mention God or they mention Jesus, or even worse, we use them as evangelistic tools to tell people about Jesus, what we're doing is we're showing someone something that is devoid of the gospel. How many have been to a bookstore lately? Are there any bookstores still around? Yeah, Barnes and Noble. I don't. I used to love to go to bookstores, but they're coming, you know, few and far between. You ever go to the spiritual section, the religion section? There's books a plenty, or as the story is, books a million, right? All these different books. And the Christian books are just lumped in with all the other books that are there, usually either grouped by title or author. And if you're not careful, you pull the wrong one out. And if you think all those books are Christian books, and you start reading them and you get your truth from them, you can be really misled. That's why you have to be careful about who you read, what you watch. Look at the author. Look at who's recommending them. Who do they get their references from? Do they get their references and, and recommendations from people who you know are solid Christians? Or do they get recommendations from people you never heard of? If we think these movies or books are authoritative in any way, we will drift from the tenets of faith that we hold. Because man's, at least in my experience, our natural inclination is to drift from what we believe. We just got back from driving to Florida. What happens if you take your hands off the steering wheel of the car? It just drifts and goes where you don't want to go. 
if we're not constantly in God's word, we're letting our hands off our spiritual faith and we're starting to drift into places that we need not, need not be. How many heard the name Rob Bell? Rob Bell was an up-and-coming preacher. He's beginning to make statements that are antithetical to our faith. Good guy. He was a good guy at one time. I read an article about a guy named Michael Gunger. How many have heard that name before? He's a worship leader. We sing some of his songs. And he's been making some statements of late which call into question his relationship with God. Why? Because both of them are drifting from biblical truth. They're beginning to interpret things by how they feel rather than what God's word really says. Now, the second thing that Gamaliel is mistaken about is he makes the assumption that if something fails, it isn't from God. How many have ever made mistakes? Not me, but anybody else? (laughs) Failure doesn't necessarily mean that God is not in it. How many of you learn from mistakes? When you do something that's wrong, you learn from it, hopefully you get better next time. So it's okay to make mistakes and mistakes happen doing God's will. He also doesn't take into account the power of the sinful nature and the power of the enemy in the world today. How many of you have temptations and thoughts in your mind that you wish you didn't have? You wonder where they come from. You have temptations to do things you know you shouldn't do. There's sin in the world. And until we're constantly in God's word, our natural inclination is to go back to the way we used to be. Things in God's economy fail. Churches close their doors every day. Every day I'm reading a statistic on how many churches close per year. Church splits happen. God uses people to accomplish his works, and sometimes people's actions can thwart what God wants to do, at least for a time. We know that God will be victorious in the end, but until then, the enemy can still use people to thwart what God wants to do. On the other side of that coin, success is no test of truth. Just because something is successful doesn't mean it's from God. When Gamaliel says, if, it's, if it fails, it must not be from God. If it is from God, it means it's going to succeed. Not necessarily true. Just because something is successful and it works doesn't mean it's from God. How many know that to be true? What's the, one of the most successful businesses in the world today? Pornography. Multi-billion dollar business. False cults grow sometimes faster than God's church. The world's fastest growing religion, Islam. Just because something is successful and people succeed doesn't automatically mean it's from God. That's what Gamaliel was saying. If it's successful, it must be God. If it fails, it must not be God. And sometimes we look at our own lives and we think, well, if it's successful, God must be behind it. Or even worse, if it's failing, then God must not be in it. You know, one of the things we struggle with as Christians is if we start to face opposition in what we're doing, sometimes we think that what we're doing must not be from God. If I'm facing hardship and trouble, then God must not be in it. When maybe God puts you right in the middle of that hardship. 
when Jesus told his disciples, go on the boat, go to the other side, I'll meet you over there. Halfway through, storm comes up. They were right in the middle of doing God's will. Storm came up. Just because you face opposition or struggle does not mean you are not doing what God wants you to do. It does mean he's going to give you the power to overcome that. But here in the end is where Gamaliel gets it right, even without knowing he's getting it right. In verse 39 says, but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll find yourselves only fighting against God. Now he's making this statement under the assumption that Jesus isn't God. He doesn't believe this statement about Jesus. He's just making a generic statement. But he believes that statement about God. He understood the power of God in a situation while not ascribing that power to Jesus. He said, well, we know Jesus isn't God, but if it were God, this is how God would work. And while it's not meant to really do anything except calm these folks down, he's stating a truth that we need to understand. And that truth is this. If you are fully immersed in God's will and trusting God in any situation with God in charge, the enemy will not be able to stop you. Let me say that again. If you are fully immersed in God's word, you're doing God's will and trusting God in every situation, pushing through, the enemy will not be able to stop you. The apostles stood up for truth. God got them out of the problem. Now the enemy will slow you down he will try to impede your progress. He will get in your way and discourage you and throw a thousand things at your, at your feet. But if you keep pushing through, the enemy will not be able to defeat you. What's the Bible say? The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Who's God's church? Us. Now, the apostles did stand up for truth, trusted God with the outcome. Whatever that outcome was, they told the, the Sanhedrin, we're not going to stop preaching. We told them the truth, stand up for God, and we're going to accept whatever consequences that mean for us. We trust God is able to deliver us from that, just like the Hebrew use in the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust God with the outcome. And so when they said that to him, they knew the possible outcome was for them to be killed. But God intervened. Gamaliel was able to dissuade the rulers from killing the apostles. So we have a whole bunch of people in the room, none of which are believers, and God used one person to thwart what that whole group was going to do. You know, we prayed for our leaders. We pray for them all the time in youth. The Bible says that God has the heart of the king in his hand, right? And he puts in power who he wants in power. So God can control whatever that leader is doing. He can sovereignly make that leader do whatever he wants to do. So when we pray for our leaders. We pray that God uses them to make things righteous. We pray for them to make wise decisions and godly decisions, whether they even know they're making a right choice or not. Gamaliel was saying something just to calm the crowd down. He didn't understand what he was actually doing. He was doing what God was orchestrating him to do. And so when we pray for those in, in leadership and power, we pray that God does the same, that God gets their heart, God makes them choose and do things that they don't understand why they're doing them. 
Verse 40 says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Praise the Lord, God delivered them from death for now. But they still suffered for the gospel. You know, you read that verse and you think, hey, they're out. And you skip that part about being flogged. I read one commentary that says they believe it was 39 lashes because 40 would kill you. So they were lashed 49 times, 39 times, and then sent out. Being a Christian doesn't deliver us from all of our problems. But it does guarantee that we have a God who fights for us, who delivers us, who works miracles in our lives, and most importantly, answers prayer. Now, how did they feel about that, the apostles? They just got beat 39 times. Verse 41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Not sure I'd be rejoicing about that moment. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They realized that their suffering at that moment in time was a chance to bring glory to God and to continue to share Christ. When your cousin was in the hospital, she was suffering at that moment. That suffering in the hospital gave her the opportunity to talk to the people in the hospital. Had she not been sick, had, not, had she been healed before she went to the hospital, nobody would have heard. She would not have had the opportunity to share Christ with the people that were treating her. But because, and sometimes in spite of the suffering, God was able to use her and us to minister to people because we're in a situation that we would not normally be in. How many of you are brought to Christ by someone who at that moment was suffering, going through adversity? Or a better question, have you ever been witnessed to by someone in adversity? Or have you witnessed to someone in your adversity? God uses those things to give us the opportunity to minister and share Christ with other people. So in spite of their suffering, in fact, because of their suffering, they were able to go out and preach and people listened because they knew what they went through and yet still serve God. We use the phrase, come expecting. I'm going to change that a little bit. Because when we say come expecting, we only expect God to work here. How about we change it to do we live expecting? Because you don't have to be here for God to work. God can work anywhere. So we're going to say we're going to live expectingly. That means we live daily with the expectations that God will intervene in our lives with whatever that means for each of us. And here's the catch. His intervention is the perfect answer to your situation. The enemy cannot overcome it, cannot overcome what God wants to do. God gives you the confidence to trust, and at that moment you cast your cares on him. So however God answers that prayer is perfect for you in that situation. 
It may not be exactly what you want, but it's going to be exactly what you need. The apostles would have loved to have gotten out of being killed and being flogged, but they didn't. God spared them from the killing, but allowed them to be suffering. That was God's answer for them. God's answer for us when he answers prayer, it may not be exactly what we pray for, but the fact that God intervenes is exactly what God is doing in your life at that moment. And you don't know what's going to happen next day, next week, next month with what you're experiencing now. Because what you're experiencing now may be the catalyst to share with somebody else who now is experiencing what you went through. 2 Corinthians 1. It allows us to walk through this life and live knowing that God has your back. Amen? Would you stand as we close this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would. Maybe you're here this morning, you are a guest, maybe you're a first-timer, maybe you've been here many, many years. But the question is still the same. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And only you can answer that. If you're here as Keith Methan this morning, you're not here by accident or coincidence. You're here because God has a divine purpose for your life. Something that was sung or said or prayed was specifically for you. It was designed to bring you into a closer relationship with Jesus. If you're here and you don't really have that relationship, you're not sure what we're talking about, but you really want to know, just like we know. The Bible says these things are written that you may know that you're saved. You may know you have a relationship. If you're in question about that, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is drawing you in right now to give you complete assurance that what you believe or what you're thinking is true. That Jesus came to pay your your sin debt. The, the mistakes and sins in your life that would keep you from God. Jesus came to forgive all of that, to cleanse it all away. And all we have to do is simply believe it, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. So if you're here and you're, you desire that relationship, you want to know this Jesus like we know Jesus, I want you to raise your hand right now. God brought you here specifically for that purpose. All right, I'm going to assume that all of us are believing Christians right now. But maybe you're here, you need encouragement. Maybe you're here, you need God to intervene. That you've kind of strayed away a little bit and you're, you're living your own life, but you're not really pressing in, you're not exercising the relationship that you have. You don't spend time praying, you don't spend time reading but you really want to get back on track. You want to develop that relationship more. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I'm going to pray that God does that in your life because that's between you and him. 
Maybe you're nervous and excited about what's going on in your life right now. You're not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. But you can be assured that God has your back, that God is already there, that God is more than able and willing to carry you through every situation, to give you all that you need to be victorious in this life. Whatever the situation is, you keep praying. You don't stop praying until something happens. God may not answer the first day, but the Bible says we are to be persistent in praying. And the Bible promises that God will answer. So Father, we are thankful this morning that we're able to come to you as your children. We're thankful that you love us and care for us more than we can imagine. You gave your only son for us so that we can have a relationship with you. Something that none of us, I'm sure, would do. But you did it for us because you loved us that much. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd fill each person here with your spirit. Allow us to really comprehend that fact and to live our lives as a reflection of the knowledge that we have that, God, you did all these things for me. I want to honor you by how I live. Not in order to get favor, but because I've already received it. Bless each person here. We pray for the leaders in VBS beginning tonight that God, you would anoint and bless them. Allow this to be a tremendous time when we minister to the young people that come. Let this be life-changing for the, for the little kids that come and allow it to be life-changing for the parents who may attend and for the leaders as well, realizing that we, as we work for the glory of God in VBS, that maybe we're affecting some young person's life for eternity that the decision they make through these next few days at Vacation Bible School will determine their entire future. Father, that's that important. So I pray for your anointing and blessing in all that happens, and we pray that everything has happened under your, your direction so that people's lives are blessed and changed with the power of God. We pray your blessings upon us as we leave this morning. Allow us to live our lives as as we said before, to honor you so you're pleased with how we live. I commit each person to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Praise the Lord this morning. Any, any VBS instructions? Where is Dustin at? He's already setting up for tonight. Great day. Hey, come back. Enjoy us for VBS. You're welcome to sit in the back and watch the kids enjoy themselves.